In episode 30, I'll be sharing a really special announcement with you, as well as some of my key findings from a booked out year so far, working with schools across the country. You're not going to want to miss these takeaways. Stay tuned. Welcome to Well-Led Schools with Adrienne Hornby. On this podcast, we talk about all things staff for being, school culture and leadership. Join me for incredible and rich conversations with a range of experts who will give you tips, tricks and inspiration to best support the well-being of the staff in your school and yourself. I'm your host, Adrienne Hornby, a health and wellbeing consultant and former school leader. I partner with schools across Australia to tailor and embed staff wellbeing action plans aimed at addressing staff burnout and building positive working environments. This episode is brought to you by our signature Well-Led Schools Partnerships, a 12-month program that brings leaders and staff together to create a shared vision for their school and empowers them to create an action plan that leads to needle-moving changes in school culture and morale. Doors to our partnerships open only once per term. Stay updated on program openings and sign up for the waitlist at adriannehornby.com.au forward slash school hyphen partnerships. Hi everyone, I'm Adrienne Hornby and thank you so much for tuning in to episode 30. I realized that I haven't officially announced at all this year (laughs) that while working in schools across the country, coaching, consulting, presenting, I've also been cooking up a tiny human in my body. (laughs) And almost two weeks ago, I gave birth to my second son, Theo Hornby. So it has really been a whirlwind of a year and I'm incredibly grateful for the support I've received in the schools that I work with as well as all of the prospective schools who will be working with me next year once I'm up and running. So a little update from me is that I'll be taking the rest of the year off face-to-face client work. So with a newborn, I'm obviously unable to travel uh, and get around like I was when I was growing him. (laughs) And so in terms of the podcast, this will be the last official promised episode for season one for the interim, and I'll be returning really soon with season two, just taking a little bit of a break. Um, I thought very quickly I'd take you back to episode one. This is where I shared a little bit about my story. And with my first son, Ruben, some of you might remember, and if you haven't listened to the episode yet, uh, if you go back and listen to that, you'll soon learn that after experiencing my own really scary uh, few years with burnout, both personally and professionally, uh, I landed myself in a position where I was actually unable to conceive naturally because of the big stress fest that had been my life. Uh, And this began two years of fertility struggles where I was unable to fall pregnant with fertility treatment or naturally, of course, with Reuben. Uh, But eventually I did. (laughs) And I always say it's in that month where I felt healthiest, happiest and well after prioritizing my own personal well-being. 
which is, of course, why I'm now so passionate about supporting other educators and individuals and, and now schools with ways to manage their well-being so that they're feeling good both personally and in the workplace. And this time around with baby number two, it was much easier. <laughs> so he uh, was put on board naturally, didn't need any interventions this time. And for that, I was incredibly grateful, also very shocked and surprised. And this year was also the year that we've relocated from Canberra to the Gold Coast. And that was not long after I found out I was pregnant. And then we've now rolled into a full on year in multiple schools. I've been away half of every week since January. So since we've got to the Gold Coast, I feel like I haven't even had a chance to properly look around, but maternity leave has allowed lots of time for that. So uh, it's been great so far. Now, this year, alongside working with a number of schools, I started the podcast and we're up to today, episode number 30. I have delivered upwards of 60 sessions in schools right across the country and the team and I have written and delivered around 20 survey data analysis reports this year. Alongside this, we've also launched a behaviour pilot program with my great friend and my last principal and boss and now my colleague Rob Lands. And what we're doing is supporting two schools within this pilot to focus on staff well-being by addressing their student behaviour and well-being challenges by systemising a whole school approach to student management, which of course then goes on to influence the well-being of their staff. So those are in, that's in schools where uh, the top stressor was student well-being and, and behaviour management. And we are having great responses from the schools that we're working with so far. And Rob and I are really looking forward to launching that full project in 2024. I've also grown my team to five. We have added a data analyst to the team to support with uh, breaking down all of that data in the staff wellbeing survey analysis reports. I now have two assistants working with me. So Alyssa, who supports me with all of my content and, and emails, and I'm bringing on a new right-hand lady. Her name is Talia. You'll be hearing more about her. She's a teacher uh, who'll be working with me uh, to support me in schools with, with all of the admin work and, of course, my behaviour partnership with Rob. It's been a busy year of travel, so I've been to every state across Australia except Tasmania, which is my home state. I'm yet to visit my family down there. So if you're from Tasmania and you need some support with staff wellbeing, <laughs> give me a yell. Now, as I said, I'll be taking a very short break for the rest of the year to focus on adjusting to being a mum of two. Uh, into week two so far, it's been a dream. My second son, Theo, has been an absolute dreamboat. Uh, now, taking only a short break isn't unusual for me. I built this arm of the business while on maternity leave with Ruben. Uh, I rarely sit still and I love to be creative and, and, and really do use my time well. I wouldn't say I'm a workaholic, especially not anymore, 
but I, I do live a really full, relaxed and well-rounded life. And I've come from a place where my mental health was so impacted to where I am now, where I feel like I'm almost a completely different person and rarely stressed or anxious. And I work because it makes me happy and it lights me up. And I feel very grateful and, and lucky to be in this position. So I'll be officially back at it in term one, uh, presenting in schools with the support of my amazing husband and family and the team that I've spent this whole year assembling around me and, of course, my amazing support network of friends and family. Uh, As I've touched on, we will still be administering and and running staff well-being surveys uh, I can I can do that from home, uh, from anywhere in Australia, really. Uh, so keep your eyes peeled for a special offer around that. Now, as I move into part two of today's podcast, I'm so excited to share a few key reflections or takeaways from the year that I know that the audience will love. And upon reflection this year have been some really key learnings uh, that I'll often talk about with with the school leaders and staff that I'm working with, uh, but also it's been a real evolution of my practice and my consultancy work. So we're going to dive into 10 of those takeaways. Uh, So make sure that you're really listening because these may be uh, some key learnings that you can utilize in terms of your staff well-being approach. So first key takeaway is that Many schools are addressing well-being, but the morale-boosting activities really need to be seen as a part of a more well-rounded approach. So one that identifies and addresses the key causes of staff stress in each individual school, but one that also applies those positive interventions to support staff and build that positive culture. So many schools are adopting things like relationship building initiatives, staff shout out walls and the setup of outdoor gardens and and space for our staff to to gather. And those are all nice and all part of a really well-rounded approach. But what we specifically need to do is take an inquiry approach. Uh, and in my work, I, I dive into the spiral of inquiry, which is which is using Timperley's model here. And I'll be covering more of this in an upcoming episode this year. But what this actually requires us to do is to really scan our school to get a, a sense and an understanding of, of what's going on for our staff, then develop a hunch as to how we're all contributing to the situation, both positively and negatively. From here, what new learning we might need to adopt in order to uh, fix or bolster or improve our current situation. So whether that's in leadership or in self-care for staff or, um, you know, is it in how we work together and communicate, for instance. From here, once we've done the learning, we can then plan for some key actions that we'll focus on. And then after this, we can check back in as to whether that new learning and those actions actually made a difference. Uh, another well-rounded approach, of course, is to adopt positive psychology's PERMA model. And I chatted more about this in episode six. So this is where an approach to staff wellbeing covers across six key pillars. So the PERMA stands for positive emotions. So 
how are we igniting the positive emotions in ourselves and in our staff? Engagement, uh, are our leadership-led engagement opportunities there? Are they consistent? Do our staff feel engaged in their daily work and given opportunities to step up, uh, develop themselves professionally and so on? The R is for relationships. So are we promoting positive relationships and collaboration, managing and preventing conflict? Meaning, do we have a clear vision for our school, whether that be for school culture, for staff wellbeing, for our key strategic areas? Do our staff feel united in their approach? The A is for accomplishments. So are we recognising the accomplishments of our staff and in one another? And finally, health. Are our staff supported with their physical and mental health or do they feel like they have avenues to be able to connect to support uh, in those areas? And I talked a lot about positive psychology and the PERMA model in episode six. So do go back and listen to that if you haven't already. Now, all of this is part of an approach which I've developed, which is to become a well-led school. So that's where we lead with well-being in mind. So how are we addressing those key areas of need in our school? What training are we providing our leaders and staff? How are we putting this together in a wellbeing action plan to ensure that relationships are strong, that staff feel engaged and that we have the appropriate and targeted wellbeing initiatives and support opportunities? Now, all of this isn't possible unless our leaders and staff are assuming a joint responsibility for staff wellbeing. This isn't just up to our leaders to put in place uh, different initiatives for staff. It's all about our staff getting involved too, making sure that they're providing the feedback required, that they're getting involved. And all of this is guided by a vision for improved staff wellbeing and culture and, of course, an action plan to keep us on track. Now, key takeaway number two is that a great starting point and the beginnings of a really solid approach to improving staff wellbeing can very simply involve simply talking about it, bringing more awareness to the issues at your school owning our joint part in our very unique situation and showing our staff that we care at a deeper level than simply just tick and flick wellbeing initiatives. My reflections on working with schools in this past year is that, is that before we have even put things in place, just bringing an awareness to staff wellbeing, having discussions and seeking feedback, is enough to begin to shift perspective in our staff. Now, in my program, it takes a full year to build a wellbeing action plan, and that's because it really takes us a while to really talk about and unpack what's going on at our school, seek the suggestions of our staff and leaders and ensure that what we're putting in place is evidence-based and is backed by the research and that our actions aren't just nice and fluffy, but that they will make a big enough difference in our school. Now, the caveat here is that simply talking about it isn't going to be successful in your school in terms of changing perspective if the leaders aren't invested in the process. So if staff still aren't happy and all you've done is have me or a wellbeing consultant come in with little or no actions actually made in your approach outside of our sessions or your messaging 
hasn't changed and your perspective in between the sessions doesn't actually shift because you don't keep our work alive, you can't really expect much of a change to happen. So what I see with uh, the, the schools who are fully invested in working with me is that they start to notice more things. They develop a curiosity and more of an awareness of how their staff are interacting or what their staff are saying or even how they lead as leaders. This is what sets a successful school partnership uh, from one that maybe doesn't move the needle as quickly as we would like. Those schools who are fully invested refer to the vision for school well-being and sorry staff well-being and school culture that we've created at the beginning of the program. They follow through with the gentle expectations set with this. They establish roles and responsibilities with their people and regularly refer to them. And I know that they are more successful because I've seen the data shift dramatically within 12 months of those schools who fully throw themselves into the process of improving culture and supporting staff well-being, again, by making sure that that work is deeply embedded in just their day-to-day operations. Key takeaway number three is that we really need to optimise how we manage workload, both as a school and as individuals. Now, I delivered a whole episode on this, and that is episode number 27, and we could see that across multiple schools and most schools that I've worked with over the last 18 month, months, workload is a, a top stressor for, for most staff across the country. But workload isn't as simple as um, you know, having extra hours or too many things to do. We, we really need to get to the root cause of why workload is an issue for our staff and what it is exactly. So when we actually look at the workload reduction toolkit that was put out by the UK government, I'll link that in the show notes, the research out of, out of this this particular resource, which is, you know, while it's a UK-based tool, is referenced by Aitzel, uh, they actually found that the top five causes of workload stress uh, start with some really obvious ones, so marking, assessment, and data entry. But what's also interesting is that communication and student behaviour are both areas which can influence our staff's perceptions and experiences with workload. Uh, And we'll be talking more about this in some key takeaways soon. So, um, you know, the first key takeaway is that you need to identify what it is about workload in your school that is actually uh, the key key stress for staff. So in some schools I work with, it's all of the extracurricular activities that are required of staff. Uh, In others, it's just the fact that they don't really have great systems happening or processes and, and, and staff feel like they're, you know, double handling things. So we, you really need to find out what it is in, in your individual school. It's also important to acknowledge that we are experiencing staff shortages across um, all states and territories right across the country. This, of course, will impact workload as well. And a, a, another key point here is that many of our staff, in fact, many people in general, aren't always working to the best of their ability in terms of time management and productivity. And that's not 
any fault of theirs. I think many of us experience this. You know, as humans, we're not quite built for the modern day life that we live. Uh, We have so many competing priorities and we think that all of them, all of the things we have to do are a priority, but uh, not everything is. People aren't necessarily skilled in scheduling their time, working with their own individual chronotype, which is when they're best positioned to work throughout the day. So whether that's morning, afternoons or evenings, and we need to understand and respect that a a lot of us work differently, but also our personality and working styles can influence the way that we work too. And when we learn more about ourselves and others, we can begin to work more efficiently, but also respect uh, the working styles and the personalities of others. A key thing here as well is around bringing awareness to how much time in the week we actually have to do things and making the most of the time that we do have outside of our face-to-face teaching time. Uh, This is also really great for leaders to realize that staff have a lot of little things that add up and our staff may legitimately not have time to do the things that we think are quick and easy and we kind of pile onto them last minute and we need to adjust our expectations. But for staff to get better at setting boundaries and and recognising how much time they do have rather than taking things on and also speaking up respectfully about the amount of tasks that Uh, We're continuing to add on and not remove things from our plate because I think a lot of the time leaders and staff do it unknowingly uh, or not realising the, you know, the workload and the to-do list of others. Something really interesting that has come up in terms of how we're managing or optimising workload in schools is when I'm working with high-performing schools, uh, many of the staff in these settings are simply looking for remuneration of their time or for extra effort. So it's really tricky in a lot of these schools, particularly government schools where we all get paid the same. But in high-performing schools, uh, staff are expected to do more marking or be around for more extracurricular activities and we can't actually pay them for that extra time. So how can we think creatively uh, as a school as for how we can remunerate that extra time and energy and effort in really creative ways. And this flows into to key takeaway number four for the year is that some of our school staff are looking for more flex- flexibility in how they work, uh, especially since COVID, and because other industries and organisations have found ways to creatively approach how they work and operate, and we haven't been able to do that in schools. And that doesn't mean that we work from home for half the day because we can't when we have face-to-face learning time. But can we trust our staff and offer more flexibility uh, for them in free periods uh, or release times uh, so that we're we're really listening to them and, and sort of stepping away from the micromanagement? Because staff really are looking for more autonomy with their time Uh, lots that I'm reading in surveys and and when I'm speaking with staff is for less monitoring. As I said before, leaving in free periods or having the flexibility to work from home there Um, and, you know, opportunities for staff to choose how they use some of their time but really strategically scaffold other times. So this might be during team meetings or planning time 
are our leaders adequately scaffolding the most effective use of that time so that we can have more freedom, autonomy and flexibilities with other with other pockets of time. And this requires us to ask the question, are our leaders actually skilled in delegation, in project management, in goal setting, etc.? Or are they leaving their teams to just do things and the work isn't really getting done in that time and then we're constantly chasing our tail? So, so my suggestion based on this year is to trial how we do things in schools. So talk about it as a staff, get some ideas, vote on it, and maybe set a time limit for how long we'll trial this for and, and then a reflection process for that. So if it is, you know, you can come in later in the day if you have a free period first or leave earlier in the afternoon uh, and we'll see how that goes after a term or after a semester. Are we getting more productive uh, you know, really having a bit of accountability for that. Uh, and if we're not, then perhaps that's something that we we can't stick with, but we at least have given our staff the opportunity uh, to, to give it a go. So key takeaway number five from this year for me is that communication is about more than what we communicate to keep our staff in the loop and what platforms we're using and more about our consistency in our messaging across the school, so from team to team, leader to leader, house groups, all of those kind of things. It's also about how we involve our staff in decision-making and consultation, how we hear their feedback, and how we follow through with the suggestions. So communication comes up a lot with many of the schools that I work with as a key stressor or area of focus moving forwards. And I hear leaders getting really frustrated because they feel like they have all of the processes, frameworks, platforms in place. You know, they're putting things up on the whiteboards, they're sending emails, but staff aren't opening the emails or reading them. And I get it. And often the remedy here is that sometimes, again, we simply just need to talk about it. Remember that perspective is everything. Get that out on the table. Let our staff voice their concerns. And then from here, we can say, well, we do have that process in place or we do communicate that via the whiteboard. Uh, and, and here we can begin to sort of shift that perspective, which is everything. And simply talking about it may actually remedy a lot of those, um, a lot of those thoughts and feelings of our staff, but also help us to gain an understanding of where, where the missing link is. Why are staff not checking the handbook? Uh, do we need to refer to that more often? Um, you know, what is it that's actually missing in them connecting what we're communicating to their understanding? Um, and what can we do here to address that? Now, if staff keep talking about things that you already have in place, I always say that we probably need to communicate it differently. Maybe we need to display it visually or make it clearer or streamline how our staff actually access this information. Um, and, and remembering too that in times of high stress and when we've got a lot going on in schools, that just because we say at one time in a staff meeting doesn't mean that our staff actually retained that. Uh, so getting, you know, having a home for these places that's really clear uh, for our staff and even a guide to sort of access our drives um, and where we keep all of our policies and processes might, and displaying that visually might be a really good strategy here. Now, the other thing to think about is that 
sometimes when we talk about communication, our leaders or even staff go straight to the fact that, yes, processes aren't made clear or there's inconsistency, but communication more often than not is actually linked to a lack of clarity around school direction, vision or consistency across our leaders. So communicating your school direction via your annual or strategic action plan is a bit dry and boring. Uh, We need to find ways to do it in a way that's engaging for our staff. So visually, regularly referring back to that, um, linking it to staff goals and team goals uh, and, and communicating that in a way that that really lands. Uh, And in addition to that, I think from here in terms of the school direction, many of our staff are feeling like their opinions aren't sought or they aren't involved in the consultative process when it comes to new school direction or change process. Uh, Or they might feel involved initially but don't feel like there's actually any follow-through from their consultation and feedback and that might be because it wasn't communicated back to them even though it's happening or they've provided their feedback but we haven't it hasn't been what we've wanted so therefore we haven't moved forward so i always say it's important to tie up the loose ends uh, and not all feedback has to be actioned but we can let our staff know what of their feedback and consultation we can action really soon what what might require more planning Um, and we've added to the to-do list, and then what of their suggestions just simply won't work and why. And if we don't do that, uh, this is where we can end up with staff who are really frustrated. Now, a really great senior leader as well can also rally their leaders with their vision. So senior leaders' principles get really clear and spend the time to communicate their vision, achieve the buy-in from their middle leaders because we have to remember that our middle leaders are often the those leaders who our staff are connecting with and talking with on a day-to-day basis. And if our principals or associate principals, assistant principals haven't been clear enough with their vision or their direction or getting that clarity with the whole leadership team, this is where things can get a little bit disjointed, particularly across the school in pockets and in teams. So I spend a lot of time with my leaders as part of wellbeing, supporting them to make sure that their whole leadership team is on board in regards to the the vision for school culture and wellbeing. But it's really important for us to do that across key strategic areas as well. So that's a big takeaway uh, from this year is making sure that our middle leaders are super clear on our direction as senior leaders. Okay, so we're going to move on now to key takeaway number six, which is that school leaders need the relevant capabilities, skills, personal attributes and emotional intelligence to make a lasting difference to how teams and schools are led. Now, first and foremost, the key takeaway is that your or our well-being as a leader matters. So I discussed this in episode four. But the research shows that when we tend to our well-being and we're thriving across a enough or a number of the, the key aspects of our, uh, of our well-being, so there's up to eight dimensions, that our staff are more likely to be thriving as well. 
So if we're burnt out, if we're highly stressed, if we're experiencing mental health challenges, it's going to be really hard for us to lead with well-being in mind and inspire well-being in our staff. So first and foremost, we have to put the oxygen mask on first. And if you think that being a good leader means putting other people before yourself, you're wrong. And the research (laughs) proves that. Uh, In fact, we need to be a an acceptable role model to our people and show them what it means to support well-being and also to look after ourselves so that we can achieve longevity in our careers. From here, we're more poised and in a better position to be able to adapt how we lead. So this is about becoming more of a transformational leader uh, rather than just an instructional or strategic leader. So more transformational leaders, of course, co-create vision and goals with their staff. They're more community-minded. They're about development of staff, but also they focus on high academic results of, of, of students on, of course, instructional support, um, but they're focused on, on, on building the person. And this requires them to have self-awareness, but of course, emotional intelligence. So some of those personal attributes or those hard and soft skills that we need are, of course, a mixture between the cognitive skills of what it takes to be an educational leader. So, you know, really understanding the curriculum and staffing and all of those things, but also having those soft skills. So um, people skills, emotional intelligence. And I've covered this in episode 28, where we talk about the big five personal attributes required to be an effective leader, having an awareness of your own personality style and also that of your staff. So do go back to episode 28 and tune into that. Uh, But then we also talked about having emotional intelligence. So those sort of five to six key skills, which of course start with self-awareness. And I covered each of those skills in episode 29. And what the research is showing us is that having the essential personal attributes, so the big five, as well as those key emotional intelligence skills, so being an emotionally intelligent leader has such a powerful impact on your people, makes you a good role model, ensures that you set a good example, and that you're able to work with a range of different personalities and establish the relationships with your people required to support them to do the best job at work. So we cannot underestimate the power of our school leaders. And this always comes back for me to those middle leaders. So a lot of the time, senior leaders have uh, a lot of experience and generally might have more skills because of that or they've been provided with adequate training. Of course, that's not all senior leaders, but our middle leaders often get forgotten here. So middle leaders sort of, uh, I guess, evolve to their positions either as head of house or head of a year group or a specific domain in a school but might not have been provided with any of the relevant leadership training but also in their personal development. And this is where the emotional intelligence and, of course, those personal attributes come in. So unless they've had life experience or a great upbringing or good role modelling from parents and people around them, they might not have developed those skills. 
and personal attributes and emotional intelligence can 100% be learned. I would say that I had very limited emotional intelligence at the beginning of my leadership journey and I did not have the relevant personal attributes which have been attributed to effective leadership either. But upon reflection and, and a lot of time spent developing those things, I have developed skills in that which I do think and hope make me a more effective leader. Key takeaway number seven, which flows on, of course, from from having the foundations of these personal attributes and emotional intelligence is that trust is everything. And if our staff don't trust us as leaders, and if we as leaders don't trust our staff, we're probably not likely going to be building bonds of trust between uh, the staff on our teams and in our school. And trust is so important and I've, I've seen where there is no trust in a school and, and the absolute, you know, drastic impacts it can have on morale and culture and well-being and mental health that I've, I've woven in leadership training to the school partnership program. It's the, the last one uh, before we go into action planning where we train leaders on what it takes to establish and sustain trust through the life cycle of trust, Uh, but also then from here how we have more difficult conversations with our people. And so when we establish trust, it's really around establishing rapport. So that's kind of how we're beginning our life cycle. Moving through to maintaining trust, which is a focus on Uh, consultation, feedback, and of course, follow through, which I talked about before. Then we establish the trust by communicating and connecting vision for our people, showing our staff that we're capable leaders, both, um, you know, in terms of the school strategic direction, but also on how we align all of the other elements of the school. So relationships and culture and, and personal and professional development and so on. Of course, of a part of that life cycle of trust is that there are there is a phase where we might break trust with our staff, or trust has been broken between a leader and staff, or between certain staff, and so there we have to focus on restoring it, and that is involves more than just simply establishing rapport again. Sorry, it's around, of course, repairing any relationship breakdown that might have that might have happened, and. When our staff trust us and they see and believe that we trust them, we're able to break away from rules. Now, if you're a leader or if you work in a school where you feel like rules are being proliferated more and more and more or professionalism is being referred to and standards a little bit too much, uh, but trust hasn't been established, this is, this is not uncommon. So in an article by Megan, I'm not going to pronounce her last name right, I know, but I'll try, Megan to Shannon Moran, it was called Fostering Teacher Professionalism in Schools, The Role of Leadership Orientation and Trust. And in this article, uh, Megan to Shannon Moran talks a lot about how many schools will divert to Uh, really hammering down on the rules and the professional standards and, and, uh, you know, our code of conduct when staff becoming a bit unruly. And this is likely a symptom of not having established or maybe having broken trust. 
and she really advocates for some key uh, some key actions here rather than hammering the code of conduct and rules and really advocates for more time spent on consultation, on feedback, on leader presence. So establishing relationships and rapport, being open to listening to staff, taking on feedback and reflection. All of these key initiatives and actions are the things that begin to develop trust with our people. So this is where we might need to reflect if we're leaders and we're finding ourselves having to talk about the code of conduct more. Do our staff trust us? Do we have the culture of trust? Is that something we need to focus on first? Uh, because more likely than not, that could be why our staff might be, um, you know, maybe being or appearing unprofessional, let's say. We're almost there. Key takeaway number eight is for schools to focus on addressing key stresses as a priority. So in episode 22, and as part of my approach, I talk a lot about the scanning process, which is where we scan our school to pinpoint exactly what's going on for, for staff. That might involve looking at a number of key data sets around culture, well-being, uh, as well as the observations of our leaders and our staff. So this is, this is really critical. So some of the leading causes of workplace stress, according to our records, are mostly workload, managing student behaviour, hefty amounts of administration tasks, staff shortages and a lack of planning time. And I actually talk about these in more detail in episode 12. So do go back and listen to that one. But I want to spend uh, some time talking here about uh, student behaviour and, and staff safety because this is a big one. So not all schools experience staff stresses linked to student behaviour and, and staff feelings of safety, but the ones who do really need to focus on that as a matter of priority. And this is around systemising your approach to behaviour and student management and getting really clear on how this looks, your approach, your framework, the expectations and how you respond to behaviours. So if student behaviour and staff safety linked to student behaviour is a big issue, you feel like you have things in place but it doesn't seem to be working, it's probably because it needs to be streamlined or, or, or focused on. And if this is the key stressor for your staff and you're then going with a wellbeing approach where you're focusing on, let's say, relationship building opportunities or telling staff to connect with Beyond Blue or linking them to the EAP, but you're not actually addressing that key cause, this is where you might face some problems. So in schools I work with where this is the key stressor, we, at the same time as addressing staff wellbeing and talking about that, we really need to systemize this approach and, and, and work on that, which is why, as I talked about at the beginning of the episode, I'm establishing a program alongside an old colleague of mine who uh, was a school leader and principal and, and worked in student support for a number of years to support schools with bringing their approach together, refocusing on it, filling in the missing gaps, because um, your staff can't feel well <laughs> mentally and emotionally if they don't feel safe or if they feel frustrated on the day-to-day -day about how student, student behaviour is being managed across the school, whether there's some inconsistencies there, whatever it might be. 
But I guess the key takeaway here that I'm trying to get at is no matter what the top stressor is in your school, whether it's behavior or workload, um, leadership, is that it's about identifying what that is, talking to staff about um, what that actually means at your school, and then address, addressing that area as a matter of priority. Don't spin your wheels focusing on well-being approaches or initiatives which are not attending to the root cause of the problem in your school. This is a really quick way to frustrate your staff further and make them feel like you're applying a tick and flick approach to well-being or you're just providing lip service. So talk about that data that you've addressed uh, that you've collected address it swiftly and in conjunction or consultation with your staff and this shows your staff that you're taking really meaningful action so the starting point for this process is of course to talk to your staff so you can anonymously survey them you can collect data or observations in teams or as a whole staff using um you know, feedback collection activities, review that data uh, and really unpack it with your people so that uh, you're not making assumptions based on, on what you're seeing or only seeing the data you want to see or can see as leaders. It's about a collective and whole school approach. Now, key takeaway number nine is in this process, we can't expect highly stressed out, burnt out, or emotionally or mentally unwell staff to take on our change initiatives straight away. So I actually had a conversation with some school leaders the other day about this, um, particularly in relation to uh, their change their change initiative around their student behaviour management processes or initiatives. And um, I, you know, they said there's a group of staff who just don't seem to be taking this on, and. I said, well, you know, like in our classroom, there's always that tier three group. Uh, So there's that group of students who struggle because of whatever's going on in their life to learn or take on new ideas or become part of that classroom community. And we make really reasonable adjustments for them, I hope. (laughs) So, so too, we must expect that there are a group of our staff who might have trauma, who are going through a really hard time, who have experienced um, being let down in another school or even in our school, and they might require that additional support in order to come on board. You'll have a group of staff who are change champions, and then you'll have your group in the middle, but we can't expect everybody to come on board and straight away. And we, we have to make reasonable adjustments and adaptations for those staff who are struggling for any number of reasons. And, you know, when we're struggling with our mental health or high stress, we're unlikely to take on new ideas or to trust or to believe that things um, will change, particularly if the school or what's happened at school has been the source of our impacted mental health or our impacted well-being. So being mindful and patient with our staff that, There might be a a core group where it takes a little bit longer uh, or who might need that additional time to to come on board. And it's important in this process that we ask the questions, well, 
How can we best support them? Who might be the best person to support them? Because it's not always our senior leadership or their team leader, particular, particularly like I was referencing before when trust has been broken or it hasn't yet been built. So it's about, you know, I always say support is like a mosaic and we can have this mosaic of support people who support us for different, uh, for different things. So I always encourage the schools that I work with once we've identified how many of our staff are burnt out or who might be struggling to think about who they might be in our team, uh, whether we're best supporting them or whether we're the best person to support them or whether it might be somebody else and, and trying to triage that support for the key group of staff in our school who are the most affected. So I've talked about this in episode 21, but creating a mentally healthy workplace in my eyes involves four key elements. So the first is creating an environment or the conditions for a mentally healthy workplace. So this is where we talk about how well-being is important. Um, you know, we, we scan our school, we start to pinpoint what those key stresses might be, also identifying what we do really well. So, so making well-being part of our culture, part of our language uh, is that first step, so laying the foundations. Then we move into step two, which is to focus on creating really strong and solid trusting relationships. So that's leaders with our staff and then also staff amongst staff. Because if we haven't already created those foundations where, you know, what we're saying is as a staff, our culture really prioritizes well-being and then we accompany it with strong relationships, really authentic leadership. Then when we go into step number three, which is to offer support and put in place those support initiatives, by the time we get to that step, it seems really disingenuous, I guess, if we don't have the relationships and the conditions set. So too often... Uh, many school leaders or schools will have options for support there. They'll have EAP. They might make reference to resources that staff can access, but without the conditions for a mentally healthy workplace and, and those relationships established, again, it seems like a tick and flick and our staff will be less likely to take up those support opportunities. So relationships are really important here. And then, of course, we have to acknowledge uh, step number four, which is that a lot of this does come down to our staff having their own resources and actually accessing some resources to be able to support themselves. Uh, and I always say that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And uh, this is this is the case with many of our staff. There might be lots of things on offer that then that they're not actually uh, taking up, or they're not utilizing any coping strategies, but. If we have ensured that we have in place steps one, two, and three, so the conditions for a mentally healthy workplace, we've established really strong relationships, and then we have support options, I really think that step number four is kind of, you know, it's really that last one, it's the icing on the cake, whereas I might talk to a lot of school leaders where they say, oh, our staff just lack skills in resilience or they're not very resilient. And they write that off straight away, but they haven't addressed steps one through three. So um, if you want to learn more about what I'm talking about here, do go back to episode 21 uh, because it's important that we make sure we address those staff who require the most support with the right support uh, rather than just thinking because we have a few things in place it's going to be what they need. 
And then finally, my key takeaway number 10, particularly from this year of working with multiple schools, is that sometimes we as leaders and staff need a critical friend or some impartial guidance from an outsider to support you and your school on your staff well-being journey. I often see from working with a number of schools that in particular I'm thinking leaders here will be attracted to flaws in their data and they can get fixated on things uh, that aren't actually the key areas for focus. So I've got a school in mind where lots of the staff were talking about communication barriers and not feeling in the loop. And the leaders were really frustrated because they were saying, oh, but we do communicate. And they kept talking about this in our session around communication. But in actual fact, what I could see coming out more strongly in the whole data set was the relationships between staff. It was actually the, how the staff were communicating with one another. It was a bit more about gossip and it was also uh, about some negativity amongst key staff that was almost like infiltrating the whole school because it was a very small school. But because in particular this this leadership team really honed in on the communication, which was actually only about 30% of staff were saying this was a problem. They spent forever talking about it. And if I wasn't there to guide them back to actually that big theme around relationships, they would have just developed a, a plan or some initiatives in place to try and tackle this communication from leadership and consistency in communication from leadership more than the actual problem, which was that staff, we really needed to establish and draw up some norms for communication for for teams and and what we expect of one another and some accountability and gentle expectations, something that we agree on as a whole staff. So it was really important that I was actually there to guide them. And so that's a big key takeaway is that if we often do this on our own, we as a leadership team might just hone in on the data, which isn't actually the thing that's screaming out at us. And I've also sat in rooms where uh, leaders will ignore what their data is really saying. So it might be around flexible working arrangements, let's say, um, or having more time off. And they just go, well, we can't do that. So let's now talk about, uh, again, communication or how we can do more team building because a, a group of staff have said we need to do that. And I think, well, while you might not be able to offer the flexible working arrangements that many of your staff are suggesting, there are some workarounds. There are some things that you might be able to do, whether it's this year or maybe it's thinking forward into the future uh, and considering your budget and finances and, and, and planning and staffing around it for the, you know, for down the line. But because they instantly wrote that off, they chose then to divert to another area. And I guarantee you, that if your staff and a large percentage of them are suggesting something and then when you come back to them, you don't actually address that area um, because in your head you've initially just thought that can't be done, it's a really quick way to derail your culture or to have a key group of staff just become more and more frustrated. So, again, this is a nod to having somebody external be part of the process of reviewing your data and it really helps to have someone take a broader look at what your data and your staff are saying and and ensure that the advice that you get is is real and it's it's attentive to what's actually happening in your school 
And this is why with the school partnership program, it's designed to support at all levels. So I'll come in and work with staff. I work with the entire leadership team to get everybody on the same page from senior leaders right down to middle. Uh, And then I also have the strategy calls with the senior leaders. Uh, And this is to ensure that everything is aligned, that we make sure the messaging from the senior leadership filters through, uh, that I as the consultant uh, have opportunities to speak really honestly with senior leadership um, as well as with the greater leadership and, of course, with staff. And the messaging is super consistent. Uh, it's, it's, you're not going to make the most out of a program uh, if it's only me coming in and delivering these, these workshops and these sessions with your staff, as I've talked about before. And then what you say doesn't actually marry up to what I say or whichever consultant that you end up working with. So, Uh, It's really important that you choose the right person to work with you uh, who can, of course, uh, open up the perspective of everybody involved and actually value add to to what might be missing uh, within your own school team. All right, so that's it from me. That um, those are my ten key takeaways from the last twelve. Well, not not quite twelve months. <laughs> we haven't made it there. Almost ten months uh, of this year working with multiple schools. And what's next is that, as I said, I'll be taking a very short intermission from the podcast over the next few weeks as we put forward some planning and we reach out to to guests and do some recording. Uh, As I said at the beginning, the team is still reviewing surveys for the rest of the year, but keep your eyes and ears open as we'll be offering a free training in Term 4, which will be designed to support schools on how to identify those key areas for focus or the themes at their school uh, as part of that school scan of staff well-being. So Typically, our training has been around the whole six-step approach to becoming a well-led school, but this one is just on step one, which is focusing on that school scan. Now, we'll be opening up a new and improved school partnership program next year, our well-led schools partnership, uh, and we'll be opening the doors to that in term one. But the survey in itself and the review is actually the first step in that process anyway. So you might like to sneak your way in this year, uh, gaining access to that very special offer, whether you decide to administer your survey in term four with your current staff or term one with your new staff, keeping in mind that term one always (laughs) gives us different results from term four. Uh, There will be more podcast episodes in season two. Many guests have been waiting to come on the show. I just haven't had the time this year to record as many episodes as I like, Uh, but hopefully my son, my newborn Theo continues to be kind to me and I can make time to record throughout the remainder of the year and get those out to you as soon as possible. So if you want to jump on the bandwagon and get started with a staff wellbeing survey, they really are a valuable tool for collecting data and feedback regarding the culture and the perceived support at your school. These surveys help leaders to make better decisions about wellbeing initiatives. And when done regularly, so each year, they're a helpful tool for tracking change and progress over time. Additionally, they provide staff with an opportunity to voice their thoughts and be involved in the process of change. So our editable 80 plus question anonymous staff wellbeing survey is grouped into four main sections to provide insight into your staff's views, opinions and wellbeing needs. 
engage and involve your staff in the process of change by giving them an opportunity to share valuable feedback regarding staff well-being, their burnout risk, school culture and staff morale and uncover your school's leading workplace stresses and what initiatives staff feel would be the most helpful so you can make better informed decisions about staff well-being and influence school culture and performance. Purchase and download all you need to capture staff voice and get started on your school's improvement journey today. You can choose between two packages, the do-it-yourself staff well-being survey where you administer it and review your data on your own, or you can purchase the staff survey with data analysis and recommendations from me. You can learn more about both packages at adrianhornby.com.au forward slash service forward slash anonymous staff surveys. And I'll also include this, uh, the link for this in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me for the final episode of season one on the Well-Led Schools podcast. You can access the show notes for this episode, complete with information and links wherever you're listening to this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave me a review. It's the end of the of the season, so it would be great if you could jump over and leave a five-star review if you haven't already. And I'll see you all, well, you'll hear from me after a short break when we return for season two. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to Well-Led Schools. I look forward to connecting with you at adrianhornby.com.au. Here you can get in contact with me, learn more about my approach and join my mailing list. I'm Adrienne Hornby. Thanks again for your time and stay well.